Colossians 1, 3 through 8, we've been looking at. Paul and Timothy were thanking God and offering up petitionary prayer regularly in behalf of the Colossian believers. This they had begun to do uh, when they first heard a report of how the Colossians were manifesting in their doctrine and in their lives the true salvation, professing faith in Jesus Christ and actively practicing love by service and relief to all the saints. And so Paul and Timothy were thanking God for that faith and love, but in doing so, they were considering those things, that faith and love, not primarily in their present exercise, but they had an eye to the promise that is to all those who know the true salvation, the promise that is to all those who believe and love, which was here called the hope laid up for you in heavens, in short, the heavenly inheritance, the heavenly Canaan, the many mansions in the Father's house, eternal glory and the riches of grace upon grace crowned by everlasting life. And as this was the promise of God to all those who know the true salvation, so it was their hope and their earnest expectation and longing and their faith. So as Paul and Timothy reflected on the faith and love of the Colossians, their thoughts rose to the promise directed to those who know and have those heavenly graces. And they saw in the Colossians not adherence, not increase of party, but those destined to inherit the eternal glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and spiritual riches beyond measure and everlasting life. And overwhelmed by this glorious vision, they then bowed before God in reverent thanksgiving and poured out their hearts in giving glory to the Lord and praying for blessings upon the Colossians. And this much we had last week uh, with the applications. Now in talking about the beginning of verse 5 last week, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, we pointed out at that time that this verse serves as a sort of pivot between two sections in these first verses. <coughs> On the one hand, in the one position, this verse connects us with the fervent prayer of Paul and Timothy, showing us the basis of their thanksgivings and the subject of their thanksgivings. And that's what we considered last week. Now this week, we want to uh, swing the text on its hinge to its other position, to its second position, where it provides the foundation for a digression from the prayers of Paul and Timothy to a reminder about the historic arrival of the gospel amongst the Colossians and its fruit-bearing there and in all the world. Now, when I call this a digression... I only mean this in a limited sense. It is a digression from the immediate context. 
He starts out with the prayers and thanksgivings, and after this in verse 9, he goes back to the prayers and thanksgivings. But it is not at all a digression from the main idea of the first chapter and indeed of the entire letter. And uh, we'll talk about that more at the end. Let's read then Colossians 3 again through 8 to remind us. We give thanks to God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints, on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens. And now, today's section. Of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as also in all the world, and is bearing fruit as also in you, from which day you heard it, and perceived the grace of God in truth, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now we're beginning today with the second half of verse 5, which is in these words, of which, or which, you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel. And what's he talking about here? This is connected with the hope of the previous cause. You see, he says, um, on account of the hope which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. In other words, this hope that he had mentioned, this uh, uh, the one laid up in the heavens, the heavenly inheritance of eternal life and glory for which Paul and Timothy were thanking God, this hope was not something unknown to the Colossians. This was not some new doctrine that they were hearing now for the first time, not at all. No, they were very familiar with this heavenly hope it was a hope of which they had heard before. Now this particular word that's translated heard before is uh, used only here in the New Testament and in fact used pretty much infrequently outside of it and its exact meaning or intent here is widely <laughs> debated. But I think that from the context and especially from the explanatory statement in the parallel in verse 6, uh, since the day you heard of it, I think that uh, it's fairly certain and clear that the meaning is not anything weird. It's just that they had heard previously of this hope. And in fact, it may carry also the idea with it, not only that they had heard previously once upon a time, but that they had heard continuously since that time of this hope in the preaching of the gospel, as, as it was a regular subject of exposition in the preaching of the gospel. And so it wasn't at all then something new. They were not strangers to it. This was not a new doctrine, this idea of the heavenly hope and the promise of the heavenly inheritance held forth to them. Now, where is it that they heard about this? heavenly hope. Well, he says it was in the word 
of the truth of the gospel. Now, first of all, they had heard of this hope when they heard the gospel. Now, bear in mind that it was the gospel as it was originally delivered to them, because that's what we're going back to. They had heard before, from since the day you heard of it, and perceived the grace of God and truth. The gospel as they originally heard it, as it was originally delivered to them, held forth the promise and hope of the heavenly inheritance of glory. In a summarizing sort of way, John uh, 3 for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There, the promise of everlasting life, which is the chief blessing of the heavenly inheritance. But also, Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18, Paul is explaining to uh, Agrippa his conversion on the road to Damascus. And when he, he says that when he uh, called out, Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus identified himself. Jesus said this, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So right here, in what you might call a summary of the preaching of the gospel that Paul was to do, it is identified as several things. It's identified as being a witness of those things, of Christ, of what he had seen, and of those things in which Christ would appear to him. And its purpose was to go to the Gentiles that they might have their eyes open, to, taken from one kingdom to another, from darkness to light, from power of Satan unto God. So, regeneration, the renewal of life, for the purpose that they might receive two things, forgiveness of sins. That's what we were accustomed to thinking of in the preaching of the gospel, but it's more than that. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So Paul's gospel, Paul's gospel, and the gospel declared to them, not by Paul, but by Epaphras, the original gospel was not merely a declaration of the person of Christ, not only a declaration of the redemptive work of Christ and how it brings propitiation and remission, but it includes also the declaration of Christ's full purchase of the new covenant in his blood and the inheritance that fell that falls to all those that are heirs of the promise. And this was truly a full gospel. And Paul says that the gospel which they had heard before that set forth to them this hope was the word of truth. 
It was not merely the gospel, it was the word of truth. And this construction is very similar to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. He says, in whom, Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there the word, the gospel of your salvation is called the word of truth, just as it is here. The word of the truth of the gospel. And this is a very, very important statement. Perhaps the principal designation, the most important characterization of the gospel in the scriptures is that it was true, that it is true, completely, totally true and dependable without the least mixture of deceit or falsehood. The gospel as they originally heard it, and of course it was communicated to them orally by preaching, the gospel as they originally heard it in which was held forth to them the promise and hope of heavenly inheritance to those who believe and prove their faith by love. This gospel was the truth. And that's important, you know, because if, if this gospel that they heard was what held forth the hope of the inheritance and that gospel was true, then... Nothing else could hold forth the hope of the inheritance, only that which they heard. That was the truth that held forth the inheritance. Now, I don't want to belabor this point. We're going to come back to it, uh, to consider it uh, as regards Paul's main purpose. Uh, but we just remember now at this point that Paul has honored the gospel uh, in two ways thus far. He has said that this original gospel was the word of truth and that it was in this original gospel that they first heard and continued to hear of the promise of the heavenly inheritance. And so it was on the basis of that gospel the, and that alone that they had such a hope. Now, the next four short clauses or parts of clauses all describe this gospel, this word of truth. And in this case, in each case, they tell us something important in, related to the overall purpose of this section. And we'll look at the meaning first and then the relationship. And to remind you, uh, these phrases are, he says, uh, on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is, come unto you, as also in all the world, and is bearing fruit, as also in you. Four things there that we will see. Uh, two groups of two things, actually. He first describes the gospel with regard to its arrival among the Colossians, and it's spread throughout the world. He says, the gospel which is come unto you, as also in all the world. Now this word, come, is used in two senses in the scriptures. Uh, it is used to mean to arrive, as you know, someone comes to your house, they arrive at your door. It also means simply to be present without meaning, without having any reference to arrival or departure, just that uh, looking on things as they are now, 
uh, you might say that we are all present here. And that doesn't mean any of us came or went or anything like that. We're all present here. So it's used in two senses. One, the sense of arrival. One, in the sense of, of being present. Uh, both will actually be necessary here, and let me explain why. The verb here is stated only once, but it should be distributed to the two halves of the statement. He says it should, uh, and in fact, because of the different prepositions that are used in each of the statements, each halves of the statement, it requires the different translations. So if we paraphrase this out, it would read this way. The gospel which is come unto you, just as also it is present in all the world. So there are two things to look at here. The arrival of the gospel among the Colossians, and the presence of the gospel in all the world. And we'll look at them in that order. First of all, the arrival of the gospel among the Colossians. You see, the gospel didn't originate in Colossae, did it? They didn't invent the gospel. They didn't even receive the gospel first. Prior to the arrival of the gospel to Colossae, what was the state of the Colossians? They were dead in sin, and they were without hope in the world. They knew of no salvation in Christ, and therefore they knew of no inheritance of heavenly glory. The gospel was something that came from outside of them. And one day, one blessed day for them, it arrived there. In the preaching of Epaphras, we'll see later. But how did it arrive? It arrived in a certain form. It arrived complete and sufficient. In other words, when the gospel came to them, they didn't have to add anything to it. They didn't have to modify it. They only had to believe in it. And the preposition used here is very suggestive. The gospel not only came among them, not only the external preaching of the gospel came to the city of Colossae and was preached there, no, it came into them. They received the gospel. It acted on them not in word alone, but in power. And by receiving the gospel, they received the Christ of the gospel. The seed did not fall on stone, but it penetrated into their hearts. The, the internal call was joined with the external, and the gospel arrived in them as well as among them. So that's the first point. The gospel didn't come from them. It didn't originate with them. They didn't add anything to it. They were in no condition to do anything of the sort. The gospel arrived from outside Colossae, complete and sufficient, and all they did was believe it. Second point, this gospel which they heard which they first heard, did not only come to them. This same gospel was present in all the world. It did not merely arrive in Colossae, it penetrated far and wide. Now concerning the phrase, all the world, many things have been written by many people, and... Uh, I confess I'm somewhat hesitant to assign it a precise meaning. Some take it to mean all of Rome's dominions. 
Others take it as a prophetic statement, not stating what has happened, but what will happen in reference to the Old Testament. I think that's very silly. Um, I think uh, it's artificial to take either of those routes. Uh, the point is that the very same gospel which they had heard before, that very gospel was not present merely in Colossae, but it spread throughout all the dominions of Rome and beyond and was continuously extending its way outward. The point here is that this was not a regional gospel. This original gospel was the ecumenical gospel. It was the universal gospel. It was not Jerusalem's gospel. It was not the Jews' gospel. It was not the Asians' gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the word of truth that had in these last days broken forth like the rising sun at daybreak and the, the rays of divine light illuminating not here and not there, but everywhere. And the gospel that had spread was the same gospel as the one they had originally heard. Now again, he's laying a groundwork here, and we'll come back, and we'll see how he's laying the groundwork. We're just trying to get the meaning right now. So, so far, the gospel is that they originally heard, was the word of truth. The gospel which they originally heard was the foundation of their hope in the eternal inheritance. The gospel that they originally heard was not invented by them, not constructed by them, not modified by them, not added to by them. It arrived among them and they believed it. And that same gospel, one gospel, that one gospel was the one that had gone throughout all the world, that had been preached everywhere. <clears throat> now, we come to the second, or the third and fourth items here. This universal presence of the gospel was not merely the widespread proclamation of the word. No, far more than that. Paul says, the gospel which is come unto you, just as in all the world, and it is bearing fruit, just as also in you. There is a parallel construction here, and if we distribute all the various phrases and all the various verbs, uh, we can paraphrase it fully this way. He's talking about, uh, he says, uh, um, he says, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you just as it is present in all the world, and it is bearing fruit in all the world just as it is bearing fruit in you. Now the gospel was bearing fruit. This word is used in the parable of the sower. Uh, that's its, its predominant uh, scripture usage. It's used, oh, I seven or eight times, something like that. Uh, just to cite, to read one of the verses, I'll give you the other references. Matthew uh, 13, 23, the parable of the sower. He says, But he that received seed into the good ground is he that hears the word and understands it, which also brings forth fruit, uh, or beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The parallels to that are Mark 4, verse 20, uh, Luke, 8, uh, Luke 8, 
chapter 15, Luke chapter 8, verse 15. We'll get it right here. Then there's an, two other important usages, one right after another. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, talking about fruit bearing. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, there is a slight change or a difference in the way that this word is used here from the way that the word is used in the other places. In here, in this place, the word is used in what is called the middle voice. That's not a voice that we really have in English, and so it's hard to translate. But it is a, a definitely uh, intentional usage in the Greek, and I'll explain the idea of it. Uh, it. It can be used in several different ways. In this place, the middle voice here likely serves as an intensifier, so that we could paraphrase it this way. The gospel itself, is bearing fruit, or the gospel is bearing fruit of itself. That's the, the intensifier, the emphasis of the verb. So there are two points to observe here. First of all, the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. Uh, this is in contrast or ex explanation of the statement that it was present in all the world. It wasn't merely present. It wasn't merely the proclamation of the word. It wasn't just sitting out there, people talking about it or something. It was bearing fruit. Now, how does the gospel bear fruit? The gospel bears fruit when it brings about the conversion of souls to the kingdom of Christ. When it is not merely a dead letter or an external call on deaf ears, but when it penetrates powerfully to the soul, renewing the heart, enlightening the mind, bringing salvation. See, Paul is saying that this universally spread gospel was no barren fig tree. It was a fruitful vine. And that in all the world, from an old uh, an Ethiopian eunuch on his way, uh, to, to back to Ethiopia, can't understand the scriptures, what happens, uh, gets the gospel preached to him, and pretty soon he's confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the gospel bearing fruit. From uh, a Palestinian Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, on the road of Damascus, on his way to hail the Christians into prisons and see them put to death and persecute them and and press them into apostasy, getting a heavenly vision, hearing the gospel, and being renewed to become the apostle to the Gentiles instead of the persecutor of the Christians. That's the gospel bearing fruit. From atheists in Rome to pagan devil worshippers in Asia being converted to the kingdom of Christ, the gospel was going forth and transforming people from the servants of the devil to the servants of Christ. And this brings us to our second point, and this is the emphasis of that middle voice. It wasn't merely bearing fruit, it was bearing fruit by its own power. The gospel itself, the gospel of itself, was bearing fruit. Now this is vital, 
It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Epaphras. It wasn't anybody else. It wasn't something additional to the gospel. It wasn't some extra doctrine, some secret work. It wasn't a work of men. The gospel itself is the tree. And it does what any sound and healthy tree does. It bears fruit of itself in its season. Now, of course, a person comes along and says, well, wait a second. <coughs> we know that regeneration is the work of the Spirit of God, and if the Spirit of God isn't joined with the preaching of the gospel, then there's no fruit and so forth. So it's something additional to the gospel. Well, that's, that's not the idea. That's true, in a sense. But it's not the idea of, of, of the Scriptures, because in the Scriptures, that secret work of God is always revealed as being in conjunction with the Word, and, and in fact, joined to the Word, not as something extra upon it or apart from it. Uh, to give you uh, just a, an example, in fact, it's so joined to it that the Scriptures, instead of saying that God did it, they say that the Word did it. First Peter, principal example of this, First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 <laughs> He says, uh, we'll go back to verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love in the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. They were born again by the word of God. Uh, of course, uh, first... Uh, Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, the preaching of the word. Romans, chapter 10, uh, verse 14. Paul says that you can't be saved if there's no gospel. He says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call in, on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So they have to hear before they can believe and be saved. And of course the gospel is called the power of God unto salvation. The gospel. <clears throat> so the scriptures set forth the gospel itself as being... A, a, not a barren fig tree, but a, 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 a fruit-bearing vine that brings forth its fruit in its season. And Paul reminds them, secondly, that this fruit-bearing of the gospel was not something that they were strangers to. Because just as it was bearing fruit in all the world, it was bearing fruit in the same way among them, just as also... It is bearing fruit in you. Had not they too been uh, uh, alienated and enemies in their minds by wicked works? Colossians 1.21 Had not they walked and lived in fornication, unclean, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which sake things the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, Colossians 3, 5 through 7, in which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. In short, had not they been under the power of darkness, Colossians 1, 13? 
And what was it that had wrought such a great change on them? So that these things were not only no longer true, but the very opposite were true. How that they now lived in faith in the true God and obedience towards Him and were members of the kingdom of His dear Son and now walked in demonstrated love to all His saints. How was it that this thing had happened? It was when the gospel had come. It was the gospel bearing fruit that had wrought this great change among them. Bearing fruit of itself. The gospel bearing fruit in all the world. <clears throat> now, we've had the gospel containing the hope of the heavenly inheritance, that original gospel. We've had that original gospel as the word of truth. We've had that original gospel as that which arrived among them, complete and sufficient. We've had that original gospel as being the one which was present in all the world. We've had that original gospel as the one which was a fruitful tree, bearing fruit of itself, by its own power in all the world. And we've had that gospel as bearing fruit in and among them. Why this digression? The purpose, the design, was to call them back to a remembrance of the gospel as it was originally preached to them, before the rise of the errors that now plagued them, and to show the sufficiency and power of that original gospel. And by laying this groundwork, Paul has a much sounder basis for his later direct attack on the false doctrines. In fact, by implication, you could stop here. He could stop right here. This is enough. This alone is enough to disprove everything new that was among them. Now he makes seven distinct points, all of which serve his purpose. And we'll, look, we'll remind ourselves of them again and how they serve his purpose. First of all, the gospel he now speaks of, first point, was the gospel they had originally heard. This was not a new doctrine, like the heresies, but that which they had heard from the beginning. You see, this alone is a powerful rebuttal. The doctrines they were now hearing and perhaps embracing, those weren't the same as the gospel that they had originally heard. What are you doing listening to these other doctrines, he's saying? That's not, that's not the gospel that, that you originally heard. And that's powerful alone. Secondly, it was the gospel as they originally heard it that declared to them the promise of the heavenly inheritance and established that hope in their hearts. In that promise was eternal glory and eternal life. You see, whatever these heretical teachers uh, might, might, uh, might bring or assert, it was in the original gospel that they received all of the promises. What could these new doctrines add to the gospel? When the gospel promised the riches of eternal grace, that original gospel, what possibly could they bring? How could they bring fullness? How could they bring something additional when the gospel had it all? Thirdly, this original gospel was the word of truth. It wasn't a mistake. 
It wasn't something given to them mixed with error. There wasn't anything left out of it that needed to be supplied later. It was the word of truth. You could, you can't change truth. And so insofar as these new doctrines changed that original gospel, they had to be false. <coughs> Fourth point. The gospel didn't originate with the Colossians, and so they weren't free to alter it. The gospel arrived in Colossae. It arrived in a certain form. It was a set of teachings. It didn't need a contribution from them, or an amendment, or an alteration. It was, it was the word of truth when it came. It was complete. It arrived there. They didn't make it up like some person writing a story where they can go back and scratch out what they don't like and change the story. Fifthly, this gospel as they originally heard it, this was the gospel known to the whole world. These new teachings were isolated. They were localized. No one else received these things. This was a powerful testament against it. All those that they confessed to be apostles, all the other churches that they claimed to have fellowship with, they received the original gospel. That was the one that was spreading throughout the whole world. If, this, if these things were so great, if these things were so important, if these new things were the gospel or the amendment to the gospel, how come they were just in Colossae? How come they weren't anywhere else? Sixthly, <clears throat> it was this original gospel that was working so mightily in the world, bearing such glorious fruit. You see, it wasn't just it wasn't just that the other people, the other Christians, the other ones didn't receive this these new teachings and they had the original gospel. This original gospel was the one that was bearing the fruit. This was the one that was doing the work. This is the one that was transforming people. This original gospel is the one that was bringing people into relationship with God. This original gospel was the one that was securing remission of sin in all the world. And, and as a, as a uh, corollary to that, it was doing it by its own nature. It, it, was, it was the tree. Bearing the fruit that it had to bear. So, it's like they're going to another tree. It, it was proving its own validity by bearing fruit of itself. Seventhly, it, and this is so powerful, it was this original gospel that had worked among them. It was this original gospel that had borne such spiritual and glorious fruit. Think about that. If this gospel was sufficient, if this gospel was sufficient to turn them from darkness to light, to take them from sin to righteousness, if, it, if this gospel was sufficient to take them out of the kingdom of Satan and put them in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, if this gospel was the one that had worked in them love to the saints and love of God and holiness. All of this they had before they ever heard a word of the new doctrines. All of this. If, if this gospel was so powerful to take them, 
to take them out of, of the kingdom of darkness and put them in the kingdom of light. How could they possibly get fullness from another doctrine? How could they possibly get the achieve the masterful gnosis and wisdom from another doctrine? This had done something so mighty, so unachievable by anything else. How could they possibly now be looking to go onward with asceticism, with Jewish ceremonies, with worshipping angels, with demeaning the sun? And so, in seven ways, Paul has already completely undermined and destroyed the foundation <coughs> for any argument for these new doctrines. Now that blink brings us to our uh, our last set of points. Several of these things have a direct application to us as well, and I'd like to speak to that now. First of all, the gospel is the word of truth. Now that simple af affirmation is likely to draw mockery today. Our uh, modern a generation that is wise in its own eyes has decided that it is fashionable to question the very existence of any absolute truth, particularly in the religious realm. And many who even would profess Christ, profess to be Christians in some way, shape, or form, talk the same way, not realizing that this is to take their stand directly with Pilate the heathen, Roman, atheistical pilot against Christ. Listen to this exchange. Chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, verses 37 and 38. Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again into the Jews and carried on. What is truth? Pilate says. Pilate says. So, so for the person to come along and say, Well, you know... There's no such thing as truth. It's all a matter of opinion. You can't take dogmatic stand. That's to, that's to blaspheme. That's blasphemy against Jesus. That's to say that Jesus' entire mission, the, the very reason that he states that he has come into the world, was purposeless and erroneous. And to say that Pilate was the one who was right. And Jesus, the one who was wrong. No, the gospel is the word of truth. Now, if the gospel is the word of truth, secondly, it is ours to receive and ours to believe, but it is not ours to change, it is not ours to add to, it is not ours to diminish. We didn't invent the gospel. It's not a story, like I mentioned before, that we created, that we can freely change, that it suits us. The gospel has descended from heaven, by the grace of God, it has arrived among us in power. It is ours to hear, ours to believe, ours to obey. Few things receive a sterner denunciation in Scripture than the daring and presumptuous deed 
of altering the gospel. Yet how many do that today? Who else change the gospel to suit their own whims? Change the ends justifies the means. We need to adopt a little bit of a different gospel so we can get more converts in the church, you know. Can't have that old gospel. Got to have that new gospel. Well, we want the old gospel. We want the gospel originally delivered, uh, which of course may not be the original way that we heard it. So we can't exactly say the same thing as uh, as uh, Paul to the Colossians. Uh, we want the gospel as whenever we truthfully heard it. We want it that way and that way only. Now this brings us to our third point. Uh, this, by implication, points us to the importance of firm adherence to and stability in the truth. This whole section is like you, you can infer it from that. Over and over again, it's coming out. And this is a thing that's much insisted on in the Scripture. Hold fast to the faith. Don't be blown around by every wind of doctrine. Even in Acts, uh, narratively, they continued in the Apostles' Doctrine, many other places. Once we have known the truth, we must stay firmly camped there. We mustn't run around after every new thing. We mustn't indulge in vain uh, theological speculations. We must not hold the truth loosely as if we were always ready to drop it when some more pleasing thing comes along. We must hold the world loosely, but not the truth. The truth we must hold with a firm grasp. <clears throat> the gospel is the word of truth. The gospel is ours to believe and receive and obey, but not to change. And because of that, we must remain firmly adherent to and stable in gospel truth. Fourth thing, one reason why it is so important for us to firmly adhere and remain stable in the truth is because it is only in the gospel that we have the promise of the eternal inheritance. No promises of that sort is made to anything else. No other gospel has that promise. To abandon the gospel is to abandon the inheritance. Just as if a person uh, were to go and renounce their citizenship in a country, then they would abandon any interest in or protection by the government of that country or any promise of, of, uh, of uh, land grant by that country. It's to be beguiled of the prize. Colossians 2.18, verse 8. Let no man beguile you of your reward or your prize. You see, if you, if, you, if, you, if you turn from the truth, if you turn from the gospel, you're beguiled, you're tricked out of your prize. The hope of heaven comes by no other road, only the straight gate and the narrow way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fifth point, consider also... It is this gospel which is mightily powerful in that of itself. It's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is a beautiful fruit-bearing tree, not a barren fig, and it will and must bear fruit. In fact, it appears from the scriptures that God sends the gospel only to those places where he has a people to gather for himself. He doesn't even send the gospel where he's not going to gather a church. doesn't mean that everybody who hears the gospel is going to believe. I'm, I'm speaking in a broader sense of the word. He sends the gospel where he's going to gather a church. That's why Paul can't go. The Spirit resists him. He wants to go to one place. The Spirit resists him. Why? Because he needs to go to another place so that he can declare the gospel, so that the elect can be called, so that the church can be established. <clears throat> 
so intimately connected is the gospel with fruit. <clears throat> we are unfortunately inclined to think that the gospel is a dead letter, but it is in God's providence intimately joined with regeneration and salvation, so that where there is no gospel, there is no salvation. And where there is the preaching of the gospel, we can be certain, we can be certain that God will gather a people. There will be a mighty demonstration of the fruit of the gospel. And the gospel is a mighty power in us as well. It must be a mighty power that takes sinners and rebels who are under the voluntary dominion of Satan and the flesh and transforms them into willing servants of a pure and holy God. The law can't do that. Many seek it by the law. The law can command, but it gives no power. The law holds forth an inheritance to be sure, but only to those who perfectly keep its precepts. Bless God that we have all and abound by the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Never turn from it. Don't let anyone beguile you of your reward. Hold fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there's more of this. We didn't uh, uh, complete this section. There's more than just those seven points that we raised. Paul's going to go on and raise several more. In uh, uh, latter half of verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. <clears throat> and we'll look to complete that, Lord willing, next week.